Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. Very warm welcome to you today to Calvary Church, part of the Parish of Calvary St. George's on this fifth Sunday of Lent. Um, uh, I read a really interesting article a couple of years ago about how uh, the advances in, with the advances in technology, many jobs, uh, which are just so common to us, um, are disappearing. For example, and I was thinking about this the other day, uh, cashiers, they're going away. I mean, have you been to the McDonald's on 23rd Street? And notice, of course you haven't, but I have been to all three. And, uh, and so, but, uh, but there are no more cashiers there. There are all these computer kiosks. If you go to the CVS or the Dwayne Reed, they're all there. They're, they're just self-checkout lines. You know, the cashier is becoming a thing of the past. Various industrial jobs they talked about have been replaced with technology. And uh, part of the article was, uh, uh, was, that was written was about jobs that used to exist, be very important, like in the 19th and early 20th centuries, that no longer exist. And one of the jobs that I found uh, interesting uh, from the late 19th century, was, uh, which no longer exists, is this position called the knocker-up. I don't know if you've heard this. But before alarm clocks, and for those of you who don't know what alarm clocks were, they were these little clocks that sat on your bed, and they're usually attached to a radio. And for those of you who don't know what a radio is, um, but the idea here was is that uh, they woke you up in the morning. You paid them a fee, and they woke you up. And usually what they would do is they would come to your door at the appointed time and just pound on it, unless you lived in a civilized area where then they would shoot peas at your window till you got up and waved at them. Now, who woke up the knocker-up? I have no idea, but nonetheless, it's a job that no longer exists. In Puritan churches, there was a paid position called the sluggard waker. And uh, this person would literally roam the aisles during the sermon with a stick. And on one end, there was a brass knob, and on the other side, there was a foxtail. And if he caught you sleeping, one was for men and one was for women, but if he caught you sleeping, he would hit you upside the head. I'm pleased to announce we've almost filled that position at Calvary St. George's, but, uh, um, but an important theological job, though, that um, uh, we don't hear much about anymore, um, but is still of the essence and is still critical, is the role of the high priest. In the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures, the high priest was essential. And he was essential because he made sacrifices to God in the temple on behalf of the people. And he did typically for three reasons. The first was for thanksgivings. Second was for your cleansing. And finally, it all culminated, most importantly, on the great day of atonement. When the high priest would come into the temple and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the entire nation. Among other rituals on that day, he would enter into the temple, into the part of the temple which was called the Holy of Holies. And there he would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. But the problem was is that these sacrifices, they didn't pay for sin once and for all. They needed to be repeated day after day, week after week, year after year. The other problem was is that the high priest himself, although of Aaron's line, was also a sinner. 
who needed to be atoned for. Now this is where you begin to understand the context of our epistle reading today. The epistle to the Hebrews. And the reason why I chose to preach on this on the fifth Sunday of Lent is because in the epistle of Hebrews, and I want to encourage you maybe if you have time this week, to go home and read it. It's actually a sermon a lot of scholars believe on Psalm 110. But the epistle to the Hebrews describes theologically what we are going to walk through in the season of Holy Week. But the epistle to the Hebrews in its context was written to Jewish believers who were struggling, as we all do, with the reality of simply Jesus and his gospel is all you need. Versus wanting some sort of big experience, something for me to participate in. And for Jewish believers of the first century, I mean, this was a real issue because the temple was still there in their very midst. It wasn't destroyed until 70 AD. The Levitic priesthood was still intact. And sacrifices, I mean, they were real and they were present. And so the question became from their family members, I mean, you go to this like little synagogue, you go to this room, you hear a sermon about Jesus, you might have a little bread and wine. I mean, we got a temple. We have a priesthood that goes all the way back to Aaron. We actually have sacrifices still. Are you sure that's all you need? Is that enough? And the same is true for us today as we kind of pine for religious experiences. We want some sort of cause to jump in and fix. You know, we're going to usher in the kingdom of God ourselves and we might invite Jesus to join us when it's all fixed and running. You know, we want God to answer our prayers the way we want it right now. What's up with this religious experience? Nothing's going my way. We want our current situation to improve right now the way I want it. I mean, serious, Jake, I got a lot of things going on. A sermon about Jesus and his work for me? A little bread and wine? Is that enough? This is my first point. In our epistle reading today, we get a theological statement of Jesus' action during Holy Week. And the point of the entire epistle is this. Yes, Jesus and his work for you. Yes, Jesus and his priesthood is enough. This is, this is not only a historical action. But this is a theological statement. So the question needs to be answered, why? Why is Jesus enough? Well, this is what the author of the Hebrews is doing. And this, this, this epistle, I mean, every verse is chocked full with so many theological truths. Each verse is just layered with meaning. It's, it's one of my favorite epistles. But the author begins to answer this question of why he's enough. And um, I'm just going to summarize and, and hone in on that last paragraph for us. Um, I did do the whole thing, but it was like a 45-minute sermon. And so, but anyway, um, but we're going to focus in on this last paragraph. Now, notice here, and, and this, if you don't like kind of read it and parse it out carefully, it can be a little confusing, and it can, put, it can sound a little bit in the English like there's an onus on you, which is not the case at all. But it begins here, and he says, although he was a son. So What's missing in the opening part of our epistle is this important word, so. And that ties it to the back where um, the author is making a defense that Jesus is greater than Aaron. 
Aaron was the line of the high priests in Judaism. And so, but he says, although he was a son. So now this is a very important title. This is a reference to his divine right, which makes Jesus uh, greater than David, greater than Moses, greater than Aaron. And if you remember in chapters 1 and 2, the author says that Jesus is actually greater than angels. And so, but although a son, which means he actually has by divine right to make the request to deliver him from the cross and this work. But he doesn't. It says he learned obedience. Now, this is a tricky thing. You have to remember Jesus is fully man and fully God. But the Greek word here, uh, obedience, is hupakuo. And what's being conveyed here is trust and faith. So although he had the authority of a son, he had to trust, he had to have faith and believe what God had declared about him. Remember when he comes out of the water, you are my well-beloved son in whom I am well-pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, you are my well-beloved son with whom I am well-pleased. As we just read in our gospel reading, which is Tuesday in Holy Week, I have glorified your name and I will glorify it. He has to believe that. He has to trust in that. So declared about him, he believes what was declared about him through what he suffered, which was the sins of the world upon the cross. And having been made perfect. Wait, what, what, what? See, this is a misunderstanding here too because Jesus has always been perfect. What that means is, is having fulfilled all righteousness. The Greek word there is telestai, having fulfilled So the idea here, if you remember when John the Baptist is like, I can't baptize you, Uh, you should baptize me. And Jesus says, let's do it now to fulfill all righteousness. By this perfect suffering, he's fulfilled all righteousness. He has become, he has become, he is, what's being conveyed here is through his suffering on the cross, he has become the fulfillment, or in the Greek, the more better. That doesn't work in English, but it works in Greek. He's become the more better sacrifice. He's become the more better source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Oh, I got to do something. No, no, no. Remember, that's hupakuo. It's for all who trust and believe in what he's done and who he is. He has become the more better sacrifice because you don't ever have to go back to the temple again. This is my second point. What the author of Hebrews is writing and what we will be reminded of during Holy Week once again is that Jesus is enough. His gospel is enough. Never forget that. As both perfect God and as both perfect man, he is the perfect sacrifice which fulfills that which was simply temporal in the Aaronic priesthood. And he makes it by his bloodshed permanent. In other words, as your high priest, Jesus is enough because his sacrifice doesn't just pay for some of our sins. His sacrifice doesn't just cover kind of the little sins for a little while. Rather, he is the telestai. Rather, his sacrifice is the fulfillment and it pays for all of our sins who trust in him. Now, 
Here comes one of the next big arguments. One of the greatest criticisms Jewish believers faced in the first century, in the early church. And a lot of Jewish believers face today. But what they were facing were claims, the claims of Christ and the notion that he was a priest, let alone a high priest. And the challenge would come from their family or their friends or their people from their synagogue or whatever. They would say, it doesn't work. Because you see, priests, nobody just like raised their hand and said, today I'd like to be a priest in Judaism. That was not how it worked. The priests in Judaism were of a bloodline. They were of the tribe of Levi. It was called the Aaronic priesthood because all of them were descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. And Jesus, what tribe was he from? He was from the tribe of Judah, which qualified him maybe to be a king. But a priest? No, sir. So the author of Hebrews responds to this objection that everyone probably in his congregation was facing. He responds to this objection in verse 10, our last line there, when he writes, having been designated by God, having been appointed by God, a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, what is that about and what does that mean? Melchizedek is a fascinating character who is mentioned only three times in the entire Bible. The first place we read about Melchizedek is in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, The nation, uh, and and, in Genesis 14, this is before the nation of Israel even existed. The second is in Psalm 110 where David describes his son who will rule forever. And he declares him a priest of the highest order, of the order of Melchizedek. And the third place is in the book of Hebrews, and it begins here in chapter 5. It finds its culmination in chapter 7 and rolls out and finishes up about chapter 10. But if you read about Melchizedek, especially going back to Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek, what it means is, is king of righteousness. And he was the king, if you read, of a place called Salam, peace, which means he was the king of righteousness and the king of peace. But you also read in Genesis 14 that he was a priest. It says that he was a priest. And he was not your typical ziggurat running around priest of Abraham's day. The book of Genesis makes it perfectly clear, laid out right there, that he was an appointed priest of the Most High God. And the cherry on top of the whole story is, is that he serves Abraham bread and wine. And the psalm goes on, when David is talking about his son, he ascribes to him the Melchizedek priesthood and connects it to the Messianic kingship. Now Melchizedek wasn't of the tribe of Levi because he was before the tribe of Levi. Two generations to be exact. And God appointed him to be a priest The argument that St. Paul makes in his epistles, especially in the book of Romans and Galatians, and the argument that the author of Hebrews is making with the Judaism of their day, and they would make the same argument of Judaism of today, is that the story doesn't begin with Moses. It begins in Genesis. It begins before Moses and Aaron. It begins with your father Abraham, 
who by faith was credited righteous and became the father of many nations. Abraham, Genesis, is essential to understanding Jesus' fulfillment and victory, is what he's making the case. And it's essential for us, too. And here's what it is. Jesus Christ, who's of the tribe of Judah, which makes him David's greater son, not being of the tribe of Levi, was appointed before the foundations of the earth, was appointed by God, like Melchizedek, to be our great priest. And on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, if you read in Psalm 110, that king is a king of righteousness, he's a king of peace, like the king in Genesis 14. And so on the basis of that, on Christ's sacrifice, the king's righteousness and his peace, Jesus in the midst of the turmoils and the oppositions and the craziness and your pining for an experience, has become your righteousness and your peace no matter what you may be experiencing. So while we're not taking applications for knocker-up, and while we're, not, uh, while we're maybe still trying to fulfill the role of the sluggard waker, hear me on this. We most certainly are not ever looking for a high priest. And there are weird Christian groups out there that are trying to like bring it back, and it's craziness. But we are not looking for a high priest, for indeed that position has been filled. And it has been filled for you by Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And we need his sacrifice because we cannot pay for our sin. And this is the good news. As our high priest, and with his shed blood, He is enough to cover our debt. And because we are saints yet sinners at the same time, we need his intercession. I mean, think about it. He is at the right hand of the Father. And as John writes in his epistle, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins. The key word there is just. Because when God the Father looks upon you, he sees you through the lens of Jesus. And he doesn't say, oh, I'm just going to forgive you again. Just promise not to mess up. That's not it. He hears the voice of our advocate, Jesus, who says, I have died for him. And it is just that you forgive his sins. So we need our high priest to make intercessions for us and to continue to cover us with his sins. Because his blood, even now in the midst of your darkest hour, is still enough. And until he returns to call us home, by faith we gather around this table and we take that bread and that wine which hearkens us back to the priesthood and the kingship of Melchizedek. And we gather around this altar and we obey. Or in other words, we gather around this altar and hupakuo, we believe by faith he is enough. And this is my third point. And this is the most important point. Take everything what I've said and just let it hit your heart. And if you've ever wondered, are you good enough for God? If you've ever wondered if you've done enough for God, if you've ever wondered if you've done something so bad that God, does he still love you? 
The author of Hebrews, and I want you to know, do not look to yourself. Rather, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes on our great high priest and his sacrifice for you and know that he's enough. Know that he's more enough, more than enough and you will be saved and that all the benefits of his eternal kingdom, all the benefits of his priesthood are yours now. For Jesus is indeed enough. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.